0: And if you do sign up, please let me know how you find it. If there's any other information you would like me to include or any other feedback, I would be very grateful if you could send me that. Thank you. Today on the podcast, I have Dr. Kendra Becker. She's a naturopathic doctor who is an expert on all things fertility, pregnancy, children's health, women's health, you know, some of my absolute favorite topics. So topic of today's discussion will be mostly around optimizing fertility and pregnancy health. There is an unbelievable amount of information in, packed into this conversation. It's only an hour long, but I am amazed at how much ground we covered. So pretty excited to share it with you. A little bit about Dr. Kendra Becker. Dr. Becker has integrated a doctor of naturopathy and advanced pra- uh, practice nursing degree to provide the best possible care to her patients. Dr. Becker understands the importance of integrating conventional and holistic medicine, and the importance of combining therapies appropriately. Prior to becoming a physician, Dr. Becker spent 10 years practicing in an, as an ICU nurse for both adults and children, specializing in cardiac surgery and cardiac anomalies before studying naturopathic medicine. Dr. Kendra Becker believes in healing through genetics and specialties in treatment of conditions such as asthma, autism, allergies, and eczema, as well as fertility. Dr. Becker integrates both a conventional background with homeopathic, naturopathic, herbal, and dietary treatments. Dr. Becker lectures on various topics throughout the nation, has made various TV appearances to discuss the importance of naturopathic medicine, and is a member of various organizations. So we talk about MTHFR, the probably the most well-known um, genetic variation that can cause problems with fertility or miscarriages, things like that. We discuss supplementation, some of the most important supplements, what to do when certain things are deficient. Uh, We discuss fertility foods and a ton of other stuff, right? So um, a great honor to have Dr. Kendra on the podcast. Uh, Let me know how you find the podcast. Is there any topics you want to cover in more depth in the future? I would love to have her back on again. I'm sure she would love to come back on again. Um, So yeah, without further ado, here is Dr. Kendra Becker. Great. So second try today on the Connecting Minds podcast, we have Dr. Kendra Becker-Musante. Kendra, thank you so much for trying a second time with our technical difficulties.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure.
0: All right. So to kick off, can you give folks a bit of uh, your background, what do you specialize in, and all that good stuff?
1: Sure. Um, I've been in practice 15 years. Um, I started in healthcare probably 20-something years ago. I graduated from college as a registered nurse. I spent eight years in the ICU. I did trauma, cardiac, pediatrics, all the good stuff. When you're in your 20s, you can do all that. Um, About six or seven years into my nursing career, I kind of had an aha moment that um, the, what we were practicing in hospital care really was sick care. It wasn't health care. And I wanted to be part of health care. So I went back to school to become a naturopathic doctor. But the problem with uh, naturopathy is that it wasn't at the time 15 years ago recognized in all 50 states. So because of my nursing background, I did a concomitant education and also completed my APRN. So at this point, with just the way that regulations are with naturopathic uh, doctoring, I actually practice almost exclusively under my APRN license, just with a more holistic angle. So that kind of brought me into this place where my practice was standard family practice. It was, you know, holistic and, you know, diet based and, and um, you know, just really focused on the whole family unit and the most non-toxic way to be. Of a good family unit. Mm. And about eight years ago, I really started to dive super, super deep into genetics. And so the evolution was, a, you know, sort of started like this, a child would come in, we would analyze their unique genetic profile. The parents would say, wow, I gave my kids those crappy genes, they would come in as patients. And then in many cases, I would also see grandparents. So mm. what isn't what's more holistic than being able to you know, see three generations of, you know, what we call in holistic medicine, myasms like disease processes, Mm -hmm. and be able to have everybody on the same page, you know, diet wise lifestyle wise to be able to help with healing. And then, as kind of a little bit of a tangent, you know, years ago we used to keep the politics and the and the healthcare separate. And certainly, over the last five or so years, that has become completely interrelated. I have always, you know, advocated for medical freedom and constitutionality around healthcare and pre, you know protection and preservation of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, and mm. and um, a lot of the other ones in between. <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> So, yeah, so
0: that's that's my jam. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, I, I was hoping we could discuss the topic of um, fertility, preparing for a healthy pregnancy, uh, sure. for this, because I know there's a few different topics we can discuss. Children's health especially is one of my biggest interests. Um, but before we get into that, can you maybe give folks a little bit more of your kind of your health journey? if that's all right, just because sure. I think there's quite quite a lot of value for people that can be gleaned there.
1: Yeah, so I'll tell you a funny story about that. I mean, I've told my health journey, you know, for 14 years uh, on public stages, and I was in my Bible study with 15 other people at my church, and I couldn't even articulate it without crying. I don't know what it was about mm-hmm. that particular experience, but Um, my health journey was really interesting. Like I said, I started off as as family practice. And you know, what's more important than preparing your body as a man or a woman to start your family. So I always did a ton of preconception health care. And then when it was time for us to start our family, I did everything that the current research had told us to do. And at the time, the recommendations were to take high dose synthetic folic acid, and to take all this other crap that really, we've found since then has not been, um, you know, medically efficacious. So I was following all the rules, I got pregnant very quickly, and I had a miscarriage at 14 weeks. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I said, well, my mother's first pregnancy was a miscarriage, I figured it was kind of a one off, even though it was, you know, a a pretty late miscarriage. And we Mm kind of, you know, literally got back on the horse and and tried again. And I had another miscarriage again at 14 weeks. And um, then it started to become this really big kind of nasty monster in my life. And I was like, this is, there's something that's not right. And so I, I was, you know, doing some research and, and literally I'll never forget that day. I got an email from one of the companies that I was using as far as purchasing supplements and all of this research had hit this, the, um, you know, the publications around the same time, about 15 years ago, that said that synthetic folic acid was in fact harmful for many women and that we should switch to a methyl folate. And it was like literally like a light bulb went off. And so that day, at that point, I have my own supplement line. I had reformulated my entire prenatal, specifically for me. And in fact, I haven't changed the formula for 15 years. And um, because I had switched from the synthetic folic acid that was previously recommended to the methyl folate, again I got pregnant and effortlessly had a baby at full Mm. term. she was born at home and then three years later I repeated the same process and had my son at home and he was born in the water and so it was just a really interesting you know kind of progression for me because two late miscarriages in your early 30s can send you down a rabbit hole through a whole lot of invasive Um, you know, technology and, you know, doctor's visits and all kinds of horrible stuff when really it is just kind of like um, a misinterpretation of your genes and, you know, your genes require a higher, you know, quality supplement in order for interpretation and manufacturing. And so for me, it was quite a simple fix that luckily I've been able to translate into my practice and help women that were just like me for years and years and years, largely because there's so much misinformation out there about what you should actually do with your body when you're trying to get pregnant or planning a pregnancy or pregnant.
0: Yeah, so I I totally agree. Um, I had a last year, someone close to me was pregnant and I asked her to send me uh, a picture of the supplements she was taking and looking at prenatal. Formulation, which was the number one pediatrician recommended uh, brand in the UK, it was garbage. Like we're talking calcium carbonate, uh, we're talking oxides for some of the minerals for binders, tons and tons of binders. Yeah. Oh, uh, but not just then. Never mind all those fairly inert things. But there was also um, uh, artificial uh, colors and. just like a ton of extra stuff, right? Yeah. So, and that's the that that's what the doctors are shilling to poor, unsuspecting women who, unfortunately, trust too much. And um, I think that's probably the biggest issue is we trust these people to take care of our health, and unfortunately, uh, maybe some of them themselves trust another authority that is feeding them, you know, potentially harmful information. But right. in your case, so what was the, what was the genetic sort of? Um, epiphanies that you had that allowed you to switch to let's say folate and other supplements?
1: So I mean, because of what I do as far as genetics, I had tested both my mine and my husband's genetics long before we had had kids. So I knew I had a genetic mutation called MTHFR methyl right. tetrahydroxyfolate reductase. I have a gene combination called compound heterozygous, which means there are two types of mutations, and I have one of each. My husband has two of the same. So we knew our kids were going to end up with MTHFR mutations no matter which way we rolled the dice. Right. <clears throat> so because of that, neither one of our bodies are very, very effective at taking synthetic folic acid and converting it into the usable form of folate, which is called methyl uh, folate so and again like i said 15 years ago and you know because of just you know the manipulation uh, uh, and the pharmaceutical companies influences you know even for me who's been practicing in holistic medicine for uh, over 15 years it still took a while to change the language around that like folate and folic acid are not the same thing methyl folate and folic acid are not the same thing but if you look in all these uh, nursing textbooks or or physician textbooks, textbooks or whatever, they use the words interchangeably and they are absolutely positively not the same. Folic acid is genetically made it is manufactured in a lab, like a pharmaceutical supplement, like a pharmaceutical uh, uh, medication period, end of story. And so to use those two things as, as the same is a a, a huge disservice to anybody that understands basic biochemistry or women that are, like you said, trying to do best by their bodies and their babies. So for me, It was, I was fortunate enough that it was a pretty easy fix once I was able to give my body what it needed as far as nutrients. I was very easily and happily able to get pregnant and carry a baby. And the importance of methylfolate is, is that it's a cell signal for about a thousand different reactions in the body. And and it's so important in pregnancy because that is the cell signal that the, the, the genetics get for the baby that happens at around six weeks. So they get certain genes turned on at six weeks that tell the baby how to grow at 10 weeks. And then they get an additional set of genes that turn on at 10 weeks tell the baby how to grow at 14 weeks and so in my case there was some sort of backlog around 10 weeks gestation because of the cell signals that were not being communicated properly
0: mm.
1: so which is right, fascinating right. to me to be able yeah, to have it's... that much information
0: it, we're so lucky to 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 at least be able to do this i know most most folks are still unfortunately there, there's a lot of education when we like you need to do we need to do right. um, but we're lucky because like I, maybe two, three years ago, I found out I have, um, uh, I'm homozygous for the MTHFR uh, C677T, right? Yep. So I, I, ha- I have both of those. Um, so I know my, my child will definitely have at least, you know, one, <laughs> at, at least will be heterozygous. And uh, luckily my, my fiance, she does not have M- MTHFR. She has other stuff. Mm-hmm. uh you know that that i don't so we, we're gonna have to you know um uh pray to god for, for the best solution but we know what to do right so i, I have in my house mm-hmm. literally every single day we take uh b vitamins with methyl methylfolate. methyl mm-hmm. folate i have folinic acid mm-hmm. and um you know it's it's about uh understanding the weak points and then how to address them it's not about you know going against god or anything like that hundred um, percent but what, what other supplement? and I, I, I'd like to kind of get your insights into what other supplements are women preparing for pregnancy or pregnant that are not taking enough of, would you say? So I'm
1: sorry, I, I would have grabbed one of my prenatals. We could have gone through each and every one of the yeah. different supplements in there. I'll send you one. Remind me when we're off. Okay. But um, I, my after the B vitamins, my second favorite thing to recommend is choline. You know, there was a study that was done, I think, uh, within the last 10 years in women's prisons, and they did a study on women of childbearing age and found 100% of the population in the women's prisons that they studied were deficient in in choline, and choline is incredibly important for brain and neurological development in a baby. Um, It can be found in, you know, eggs if people are eating pastured eggs. But for the most part, it's, it's relatively difficult to get adequate doses and you need about a hundred times more when you're growing a baby. So (laughs) choline's my my second favorite to recommend for pregnancy pre-pregnancy I would have to say my second favorite is probably vitamin D vitamin D is so important and super super integral in helping you get pregnant and you know it's again it's kind of funny you know people come in and they're like oh Dr. Kendra you're such a genius and this that and the other thing I was like nah I just understand basic biochemistry but I'll take the whim it's fine and um <laughs> but I've, I've had women that have come in that have had multiple miscarriages that again are on their way down that fertility hole and i do simple lab work and find out that their vitamin d is nine and it should be 60 you know
0: so um, that's a good one the thing about choline is actually i i from what i understand if you if you have mthfr snips um choline can be used in the place of folate to to run some of that methylation cycle so right. i think that could definitely like we we take um daily we take alpha gpc and cdp choline daily I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think i should bump up my yeah. fiance's um what, what would be your choline daily um amount
1: it would vary from person to person based on their genetic snips because yeah. you're absolutely right because you can if you take too high dose of of choline in the presence of a b12 deficiency you can competitively inhibit the b12 so it right. would from person to person, I would think, Um, but Mm -hmm. I would say for the most part, if you're comfortable with your genetics, probably the more, the better.
0: (laughs) And so what's like it's 500 milligrams to a gram, would that be a moderate dose? Would that be like a- I would say
1: that's a moderate dose. And I think that's about what's in my prenatal because the idea is, is when you put all these B vitamins together, they work real synergistically with each other and they start to potentiate. So you don't need truckloads of it. If your B vitamin balance, if your B vitamins are balanced.
0: Yeah, I think that this issue around choline, like women really have to be educated. It's, it's kind of a, a B vitamin, which a lot of people don't know. And vitamin kind of states that it's either not, we can't produce it or we can't produce enough of it. So it's super essential for, for health. Um, But tell me about the vitamin D. So I know pre-pregnancy, it's important to get those levels high. What would you do if you find out that you're pregnant but your vitamin D levels are kind of low let's say in the 30s or something like that
1: i w- the 30s you probably could still maintain a pregnancy and i would just probably beef up that mama and I, right. as a rule i generally support the mom all the way through till she's done nursing her last baby so if you're you know pregnant with your first baby but planning on having four your vitamin D dose stays basically the same until that last baby is done being nursed <clears throat> and- Only because vitamin D is fat soluble, it's required for dopamine production, which we don't get enough of when you're pregnant and nursing anyway, because your sleep is kind of jacked up. And so it's, and especially if you live anywhere north of Florida, or you're using sunscreen, or you shower a couple of times a day and things like that, those are all things that inhibit vitamin D levels. So um, if a woman is already pregnant, I wouldn't be shy about boosting up her dose at all. Um, but if she's having trouble with miscarriage, then I definitely recommend that they get her—we get her level to a therapeutic place before she tries to have another, um, get pregnant again.
0: And what kind of day dosages would you would you say are Yeah,
1: so standard, I think USDA recommends like 400 to 800 on um, vitamin D. Uh, My standard dose, as long as I'm familiar with patients genetics is generally somewhere between 2000 and 5000 I use daily, but I'm not shy with vitamin D, you know, I have dosed uh, 10,000, 20,000, even 50,000 in patients that were really, really low, as long as you follow those levels and make sure that the level doesn't get too high.
0: Right, right, right. I read a paper I think it was published in 2006 that basically the the person that wrote published it was just criticizing how badly the uh, RDAs for vitamin D were yeah. designed and how they're doing they were doing like a I think a 14 year trial or 16 year trial on pregnant women with mm-hmm. up to 4,000 IU's and they don't they was blinded so they didn't know what the outcomes were but they just know that bunch of the women in the in the study had much improved outcomes generally so i think yeah i think there's a lot of um kind of misinformation around vitamin d there that it's super dangerous to take if you're pregnant although like it's it's like iron it's it's dangerous if you're super high in it but what if you're super deficient i don't i highly doubt it will suddenly become dangerous to drink you know a a supplement you're deficient in if you need it
1: Exactly, exactly. Well, and so I'll tell you a funny story because I've been in practice for 15 years and I don't know if you know the story about uh, the Dr. Kilmer McCulley and homocysteine. No. So Kilmer McCulley um, was a Harvard researcher and he had discovered homocysteine was a better prognosticator for heart disease than what they were using prior to homocysteine. But when the research first came out, it rubbed everybody the wrong way because pharmaceutical companies had already directed their marketing toward whatever levels they were looking at at that time, which I can't remember actually at the top of my head so they actually tossed him out of harvard and took away his like nobel peace prize or whatever they gave him and then um you know about five or six years later they realized he was right and quietly kind of reinstated it and then fast forward and so you know i'm watching this whole thing take place and i was like oh this is only the beginning I'm watching this whole thing take place because right about that time was all of the research that had come out about vitamin D, how vitamin D was more than just what we needed for bones. And it was fat soluble and you needed to have, you know, the K2 and magnesium and like all this research was coming out. So I had started regularly testing my patients for vitamin D. Now this is 15 years ago. Mm. And I would get, I would order thousands of dollars of of lab work on these patients. And I would get um, notifications of rejection from the insurance company for vitamin D because I didn't code for osteoporosis, because I wasn't checking for osteoporosis. And so, you know, that went on for about five years. And now I even see standard, you know, PCPs ordering vitamin D levels and dosing appropriately. So it's, it's all, you know, we always say in naturopathic medicine, we're very quick to jump on a bandwagon after one study and conventional medicine is very, very slow. And if we could just somehow come to the middle, I think our patients would get much better care.
0: Absolutely. And this is why, I I don't know how many, it's a, it's a young podcast, but I've already had maybe five, like 20% of the guests have been naturopathic doctors. I love talking. Yeah. With, like I have Dr. Joe Pizzorno's books, um, pretty much like his textbooks, and was his 2000 page books. These are my favorite books yeah. to kind of dip in and out of. Um, So yeah, you, you mentioned homocysteine, which is something I wanted to kind of ask you about. So mm-hmm. um, I think it, it is a great marker to include on, on, just even like a progress panel for any person generally. But uh, what would be some of the most valuable blood markers you would run, uh, not just for homocysteine, but also to evaluate methylation status generally and if there's any other potential problems?
1: So for methylation status, if MTHFR is unknown, I do uh, MTHFR, I do MMA, methylmalonic acid, I do ceruloplasmin, and I do homocysteine specifically. Um, mm-hmm. However, we know that B vitamins and B vitamin cofactors don't necessarily work independently of each other. So I also always check things like thyroid. I always check the you know adrenals, and I always check um, uh, vitamin and mineral levels. So I actually do standard B12 and folate in labs. I do RBC magnesium. I do RBC zinc and things like that. I love lab work. I think it be it can be very very definitive, and and really help decipher for a course or a trajectory for a patient that's very precise and, and specific.
0: Right. And um, what, like, let's say homocysteine is high. Mm-hmm. What, what, what What's your take on trimethylglycine? Would you, especially for for pregnant women, would you add that to?
1: I don't use trimethylglycine in pregnant women. There was a study that came out about, so let me back up a little bit. I, like I said, I have my own supplement line. And what right. I've done with my supplement line is I just, I basically did all of the research or myself on on how I was going to formulate the supplements, or I, it was a supplement uh, combination that I used from a company that either went bankrupt or you know knew and improved their formula and crap right. like that. And I took those original formulas because you can't patent you know supplement formulas. Yeah. So I make this beautiful mega multi B vitamin right. So it's B six nine and twelve. I put DMG TMG in there. I think there's a little bit of mag glycinate. It was like the sexiest of the sexy when I had created it about eight years ago. Then this study had come out that says that there was one, it was just one study, remember naturopath. So it's one study that says that TMG is not super awesome for pregnant women. I can't remember what the study was about. I can't remember if there was somebody in the study that had a baby with a birth defect or a miscarriage or whatever, but that kind of triggered us to kind of say, we're not gonna give TMG to women that are pregnant. So I use it uh, ubiquitously in women that are not pregnant uh, without a problem because I do think it really helps support the methylation process pretty effectively, but I just, I'm a little hedgy about using it in pregnancy.
0: And would you use standard glycine? Yes. That's all right. Yeah. And what about, just out of curiosity, what about uh, other um, amino acids like uh, NAC or taurine? Would you think there's value in those?
1: Um, NAC, yes. Taurine, you got to be really careful with because if you have somebody that's sulfur sensitive or that doesn't do well with methyl donors, taurine tends to be one of those ones that you have to be a little bit more um, cautious with as far as you know prescribing or recommending.
0: Right, right. Okay, awesome. Now on your website, um, I saw in a, 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 a couple of places you talking about using traditional fertility foods now pray tell what are traditional i'd love to know what are traditional oh
1: yeah so i gave a great lecture on this i'll try to find it and send it to you so fertility foods are all things that kind of look like an egg so an egg um (laughs) avocado Almonds are generally, you know, fertility foods and then, you know, fruit foods that help enhance fertility. And then depending on where the depletion is, or if you're looking at somebody from traditional Chinese medicine, whether they have a yin constitution or a yang constitution, you balance it that way. So um, also foods that are high and very rich in B vitamins, like all the dark green leafy vegetables are considered fertility foods and foods that are naturally anti-inflammatory are considered fertility foods.
0: Okay, awesome, awesome. Yeah. Now, what, what what is your stance on vegetarian slash vegan diets for before, during pregnancy, or during nursing? Not a fan. Not a fan. <laughs> yeah, same here. But can okay. you can you tell the listeners why you're not a fan?
1: Sure. Don't throw daggers at me, or you know, send me packages of fake meat, people. Okay, <laughs> don't do it. But the reason I I mean, I really believe, you know, we are omnivores, you know, we have eyes on the front of our head, we have canine teeth, we have enzymes in our gut to be able to digest cooked meat. So we are naturally designed to be able to we have to have an omnivore diet. So does that mean you need to go you know around and, and pull over on the side of the road and gnaw on the cow that you see in the pasture? Absolutely not. But I do think animal protein has a huge nutritional value for humans, particularly in, um, and I'll tell you a funny story, particularly in pregnancy. So I was a vegetarian for about 15 uh, a, a, I would call myself a soft vegetarian for about right. 15 years. So I lived in Southern California. It was really easy to be vegetarian and then like maybe on... Oh. Easter Sunday or you know, Christmas or something, I would have a small piece of meat if my family was serving it. So I can't Mm -hmm. say that I was exclusively a vegetarian, but um, I lived that lifestyle for about 15 years. And then when I got pregnant with my daughter, um, my husband came home one day and I was cooking beef. And so he says to me, he goes, what are you cooking Mm -hmm. beef for? You're cooking it for the dog. I was like, it's for me. Shut up. (laughs) And, uh, it was like, I started to crave beef. Like I have never, ever craved beef and animal protein like that before. And honestly, from that day, I never looked back. And I just think if people really listen to their bodies and listen to what their bodies are telling them, then they'll get those messages. And it's really because when my daughter was born, um, you know very shortly after she got teeth she really started to enjoy a lot of beef and i was like see i conditioned her right so um i just believe that we you know there's nutrient density in high quality animal protein like grass fed beef and pastured chicken and and you know wild caught fish if you can find some that isn't full of radiation and things like that yeah. that are, are just nutrients that are not easily replaceable with an exclusively plant-based diet. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't eat plants because people should. And and what I usually say is as a rule of thumb, if you're looking at your dinner plate, that, you know, your circle of your dinner plate, one quarter of that should be animal protein and three quarters of that should be vegetables. And that's really what I generally recommend as far as a diet for my patients.
0: Right. You know, um, I kind of, a few years back, I I I was on the plant-based bandwagon for in total two years. And I was reading uh, a few kind of sources that most kind of vegans or plant-based people would be Mm -hmm. exposed to first. And I kind of, I got to say the brainwashing level is pretty high because the, you know, they. Teach that um, meat and animal products are not nutrient dense. In fact, the opposite that the plants are nutrient dense. And then, like a lot of those folks, unfortunately, their uh, diets are largely grain based. Mm-hmm. That you know, in these grains are not traditionally prepared, so there's a lot of anti nutrients, a lot of potential kind of uh, you know, um, oxalates, um, phytates, o- yep, you got phytates, it, phytates, et etc. And then at the same time. When you look at the uh, uh, like mus even muscle meat, I mean it's like th- those muscle fibers to work, they need any- anything inside the mitochondria, which is like all the B vitamins, iron, yeah. selenium. um, You know, an egg, an yeah. egg is almost like a multivitamin. Liver is almost like a multivitamin, and it's yeah. kind of it's kind of opposite land out there in the mainstream where you you, you would I I I doubt. Um, you know, some lentils are going to have the, exact. you know, similar, who will survive longer on lentils or on meat who have a a better quality of life and better health, you know, it's kind of the question.
1: Well, you know, there's no sustainable society across the world that is exclusively vegan. There are lots and lots of vegetarian societies, but their diets are largely very, very heavy in dairy products. So, I mean, they're not eating, uh, you know, the meat from, you know, cows and things like that, but they're eating tons of of cheese and they're eating tons of dairy and things like that. And there's a couple of rules to quote unquote rules to vegetarianism. So if you do three colors of lentils or three colors of beans or a grain and a, a nut or a grain and a seed, you can get all of the essential amino acids that, that you would get in a piece of steak or a piece of chicken. But it's a lot more, like you said, gastric work because you're fighting through the phytates and the lectins and the oxalates and all of yeah. these other challenges that if your gut is impaired ever so slightly, you're not gonna be able to absorb those nutrients. And um, it's, uh, the brainwashing is really high. And my husband's a, a, yeah. like, we're, we're paleo, we eat a, a paleo diet. And um, he watched one of those vegetarian movies one day and he was like oh i'm gonna try that and it was about it was a soy based like garbage diet i was like you are not ever going to try that and (laughs) and the part of course as a man that appealed to him was it talked about these guys that were vegetarians that got more erections at night than the meat eaters and in the the one week study that they saw that And, and i was like give me a friggin break but um a couple of years ago, I did, you know, I'm pretty strict paleo. I've run a couple of half marathons. I'm training for another one now. And when I start getting over eight miles, I do add the grains in. And what usually happens to me is is after about eight miles, you get about eight miles in for your training runs. And then mile nine and ten, all I do is fantasize about coming home and eating like giant bowls of rice. And so I'm like, oh, well, my body wants giant bowls of rice. I'm gonna go home and eat a giant bowl of rice, It's yeah, just kind yeah. of funny. And funny. um So, but years ago when I was training for a half marathon, I have a friend who's exactly the same age that I am and he's vegan and he runs Spartan beasts and things like that. And I was like, I'm going to just do a vegan cleanse. I feel like I just need a clean out. And so I had structured it. I mean, I I had started to eat grains after not eating grains for probably three or four years at that time. And I was eating tons and tons of vegetables and I could not manage my blood sugar. I was watching Mm. my macros. I was looking at all of my calories. I sent him you know weeks and weeks of diet diaries and i was like what am i doing wrong like to the point that i actually added dairy back in because i thought maybe that would be a little bit easier for the blood sugar i couldn't do it and i'm i'm pretty sensitive with blood sugar anyway and you know with paleo you tend to be on the low level of normal anyway because the foods you're eating have a low glycemic index so i was like get this vegan crap. I can't do it. And what I did, which is totally crazy is I just added a tiny bit of animal protein back in. Like I put a quarter of a cup of chicken on my salad, or I ate like four ounces of a filet. And that was enough to be able to balance my blood sugar. So it's not, I mean, we're not talking about going out and having a rancher porterhouse morning, noon, and night. We're just talking about enough you know protein animal protein that gives you the vitamins and the nutrients and the blood sugar stability that your body needs
0: totally totally i think a lot of folks um if like you say especially dudes don't do this but to listen to your body um it's it's a very foreign concept to a lot of guys but if unfortunately a lot of those folks once you once you go go on the kind of plant based train i don't even say vegan cuz you know yeah. it's it's a very loaded term nowadays it's very difficult now because they feel guilty and like there was this whole a couple of years ago why i'm no longer vegan thing on youtube they were all coming out and, and like their f- own fans were like i'm going to i hope you die this <laughs> kind of stuff like like extremely toxic toxic and you see these people okay well like maybe if you if you care so much about the animals but like don't care at all about other human beings that's a little bit you know anyway let's not turn that into, uh, <laughs> into that but uh but definitely yeah. um i think uh for for pregnancy it's super important to eat those animal foods and there was you you said something about gut gut stuff gut health and i have a question on that but before i forget what would be your kind of Pregnancy fish oil DHA cod liver oil kind of uh, protocol. What would be like the upper, the, the 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 minimum and the upper tolerable limit?
1: So there's several studies that have come out that show that fish oil in in a dose of about three hundred, sorry, three grams, um, help reduce the risk of miscarriage. So right. generally, I th- is it two to one? It's two. Um, I think it's two to one EPA DHA. I, I always yeah. kind of mess up the ratio, but I think EPA that's what DHA, it is. Yeah. Um, I always do straight fish oil, straight omega-3. There was some misinformation that was recently released that said that fish get their um, omega-3s from algae, which is true and why don't we just get our omega-3s from algae because we don't humans have an enzyme or are missing an enzyme called delta-6 desaturase that converts the omega-6 to the omega-3 and omega-6 is very very inflammatory um it's what you know all the 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 vegetarian animals eat you know the fish the horses and all of that they have Mm. that enzyme to convert we do not and so if you're taking in a lot of omega-6 that's not getting converted it can be very very inflammatory in the body I always give straight, um, large fish, small fish, fish oil. That's super, super concentrated and, you know, low levels as low as I can get with any of the toxins, the, um, BPBs and things like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And what about cod liver oil? What's your take?
1: Um, my problem in my practice with, I think cod liver oil is great. My problem in my practice is I was only uh, able to get a liquid when I was looking at bringing on a fish oil, I couldn't get it in capsules. And the last thing that pregnant women want to do is swallow back a couple tablespoons of cod liver oil when they're pregnant. So I always just aired on a a capsule and I use it's, um, minus salmon liver and sardines. There's like four different fish livers that are in there. So it's kind of the same thing.
0: It's more to to prevent kind of the gagging and all that vomiting. Exactly. Yeah, I
1: find the compliance is way better with big horse pills than than C, liquid yes, fish oil in pregnancy.
0: And <laughs> so, I know there's been kind of even like there's another there's even more. I know there's a lot of misinformation out there, but um, I know a lot of mainstream sources kind of poop on cod liver oil because of the vitamin A content. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that?
1: I would say you need vitamin A. In fact, one of the texts I sent to one of my patients before we got on this morning is you need more vitamin A. So yeah. what's the rule with vitamin A, Christian? Do
0: you know? Um, it well, I know a couple of things that it's it needs to be in balance with the other fat-soluble vitamins for for one thing.
1: Yep. So if your vitamin D level is low, can't absorb vitamin A. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you gotta make sure your vitamin D level is, is therapeutic. And then they also, <clears throat> there's a couple of very specific genes that can inhibit or enhance absorption of vitamin A. So you wanna make sure you either have or don't have those based on dosing. Um, vitamin A, if your vitamin D and your magnesium levels are good, in many cases, you can get it straight out of the diet or from the sun, it's easy enough. Um, I do tend to supplement it a little bit in pregnancy. I just find it to be effective.
0: Right, right, okay. And the question about the gut was so we all obviously we we know how important good gut health is uh, for whatever for anything. But um, what would you do if you had a patient, um, let's say you found uh, yeast overgrowth or some type of pathogenic bacteria while she was pregnant, how would you proceed? I probably
1: wouldn't, I probably would just support. It's not uncommon to find yeast overgrowth in pregnancy because high levels of estrogen that are required to maintain the pregnancy make tissue soft and supple. And so, and also sweet and Mm. quote unquote. And so Candida is pretty uh, common in high levels in pregnancy. So I probably would just support that individual with some probiotics until after she was either done being pregnant or done nursing, depending on the level of her symptoms, but things like a paleo diet, which is naturally anti-candidal, um, tends to be really effective and and I kind of look at yeast as as um we I call it you know so I'm Italian right and and we have a saying in, in Italian that says fish and company stink after three days and so my grandmother used to tell me stories about when the relatives used to come and she was ready for them to leave she would take the sheets off the bed they were sleeping on and so um (laughs) <laughs> that's kind of what I do is you just don't allow the area to be hospitable. And then the candida kind of go, you know, gets the hint and goes away. So, mm. you know, things like coconut oil, things like, um, you know, that are not sweet by nature, you know, vegetables in general, butter, all of those things are things that are naturally anti-candidal. So I usually just kind of tr- ignore the candida, so to speak, in a way that if your gut is pretty balanced, it's an opportunistic um, fungus anyway. So
0: it will just yeah. go away. Right. Right. Love it. Love it. And um, what um, can I know there'd be probably more women than men listening to this. So can you tell the ladies um, er, regarding weight, being overweight while let's say you find out you're pregnant Mm -hmm. and you're a little bit overweight Mm -hmm. or you are preparing to to become pregnant and you're a bit overweight? How would you what would you advise the ladies listening to to do?
1: Well, I mean, ideal body weight is definitely ideal for more positive outcomes in pregnancy. It's period, end of story. So, um, I mean, a few vanity pounds, you know, versus 20, 30, 40 pounds that can really affect your weight are two different animals. But I've always, um, or I've never really focused on weight and I've always just focused on health status. So I would say if you, you know, kind of tweak your diet to a really super balanced diet, that your weight will normalize wherever you need to be. And if it's more than just that, then you probably should take a look at some of the metabolic markers, inflammation markers, thyroid markers, and see if there's something out of balance that's triggering you to carry extra pounds.
0: Okay, okay. So, um, yeah, it's probably not a good idea to start losing a lot of weight while you're being pregnant. All those to- toxins getting released into the bloodstream is probably correct. Exactly. not a good idea. Yeah. Not a good idea at all. What, what about um, some prophylactic binder use, let's say charcoal or uh, zeolite or modified citrospectin, Would those ever make it into uh, one of your patient's protocols while they're pregnant?
1: No, oh. not unless. I mean, I might use charcoal if um, my patient ends up with like norovirus or something, but... Mm. As a regular rule, no, because the problem with things like charcoal or bentonite clay, even zeolite for that matter, is yeah. they, they are great binders for toxins, but in many cases, they also bind to the essential minerals as well. And that's not anything I would want to ever take out of a circulatory system of a mom or a
0: baby. Right, right, right. And um, I was reading about raspberry, raspberry, yep. tea, uh, raspberry leaf, leaf tea. tea. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what's your take on that?
1: That's good stuff. I used it with both my pregnancies. Uh, my yeah. labor with my daughter was 12 hours from first contraction to when I held my baby in my second wow. uh, pregnancy. Uh, my labor was five hours. And um, my it's funny, my midwife was retiring and she really wasn't doing many births. And I called her, I was like 20 something weeks pregnant. And I was like, I just want to let you know I'm pregnant and you have to come to my birth, but I promise <laughs> you it'll be a five hour labor. And she was like, of course. And it was a five hour labor. So it was wow, kind of funny. That's but generally the rule of thumb is one cup a day um, of red raspberry leaf tea up until about week 36 and then you can go to two so there's lots and lots of research that shows that it helps with postpartum bleeding and effective contractions so I think it's good stuff I really do and I think it tastes good you know like my babies were born in the fall so I used to make red raspberry leaf tea and then I would keep it in the refrigerator and drink it almost like a like a lemonade
0: wow so you would drink it until the day Mm -hmm. sure okay I got like Ten boxes of that actually here All organic right, cool. stuff for when the time comes. There um, you go, perfect. <laughs> yeah, uh, so let's talk a little bit more about preparing for the the labor. You know, the last let's say the last trimester. Yeah. Um, w- what are some kind of big tips or let, let's say what are some misconceptions you would like to dispel? Any tips you can give to moms?
1: Sure, so my first tip is chiropractic, 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 <laughs> so much chiropractic, period. Wow. And uh, I mean, my husband's a chiropractor, so I am a little biased, but I mean, we see about a third of our practice or his practice is, is pregnant women or women planning to become pregnant um, and their labors are short and swift and their postpartum recovery is amazing. And, and with my son, um, when I was about 35 weeks pregnant, he flipped and I could feel it because it gets very, I mean, he was a big baby at that point and I could Mm -hmm. feel it. And so I was like, Oh no, we're not doing this. Like we're going to have this baby at home. Like I'm not doing this. So I drove to the office and my husband gave me one adjustment and the baby, I could feel the baby flip right back around. So it's, I mean, if you know your body, I mean, it's, it's really amazing to be part of, but chiro- the, the research on chiropractic, the stack is an inch and a half thick of, of the benefits in, in pregnancy. My other That's little nice. tip is for somebody who's not following a... a a paleo diet or who is including dairy in their diet is to stop all dairy products uh, and not butter. We all know that butter's fat, not dairy, just in case, you know, yeah. for clarification, but to stop dairy products that contain dairy protein for the last trimester of pregnancy, because it can cause sensitivity in your baby and, and risk your baby to have an allergy to dairy. Aye. What about that's like, that's like super old research, like from the seventies.
0: Wow yeah that's that's an amazing tip what about um goat and sheep's milk
1: it all contains the same casing protein
0: uh, i mean i have to write that down yeah there you go so that's the, the just the last trimester it's just okay the last,
1: correct when the placenta gets a little bit more permeable and, you know, mom is passing antibodies to baby and things like that. So generally during the first two trimesters, there's not a lot of research that that's a problem, but there's some substantial research that's old, that's 30, 40, 50 years old that shows that, you know, reducing dairy or eliminating it in your last trimester reduces the risk of dairy sensitivity. So, which I think is cool research.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. Well, geez, you know, this, this, it's been an unbelievable conversation so far, Kendra. Really, thank you so much. My pleasure. Uh, what, what about, so t- tell me a little bit more about, so did you do a, you said you did a water birth that was at home, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what are some some things if let's say a family unit is considering a home birth, what are some things they need to know about some potential pitfalls they can, they should look out for? Um, I don't,
1: I mean, I don't, I, I don't know who in their right mind would want to have a baby in the hospital in our current climate anyway. And it's kind of funny because, you know, it's, uh, there's a bit of an apocalyptic feeling to the world right now. And I have dozens of pregnant patients right now. I'm like, good for you. Have your baby. at Um, so, I mean, I I really give them a lot of credit for persevering through this. I don't know why anybody would want to have a baby in the hospital. I mean, um, So I can speak to the statistics with my midwife. You know, they do hospital transfers. You know, they have agreements with local hospitals and about 2% of their first time moms get transferred to a hospital. About 1% of their second time moms get transferred to the hospital. So the statistics are really, really low. And clearly their C-section, even if that entire 2% of their patient population had a C-section, which is never the case, that's still far less than what the C-section rate would be in- um, Yeah. a hospital. So a home birth is a very different animal. You are free to move, you know, about, you are free to just kind of do what you're comfortable to do. So with my daughter, my contractions started at four in the morning. Um, I got up. I showered. I ate. Uh, I walked around in the backyard when the sun came up. I threw sticks and balls to my dog to just keep mm-hmm. moving. I got in and out of the tub, um, mm-hmm. and then when my water broke, it kind of got hard. So I got in bed and pushed out a baby a couple hours later. Right. With my son, he was born at midnight, and like you have all these like preconceived notions about how <laughs> your births are gonna go. And I like didn't want to have a <laughs> night birth because I had to wake up the next day and take care of my other kid, and I was like all yeah. stressed out about this. And so when I went into labor about seven o'clock, I was like freaking out. And I called the midwife and I was like, you got to get over here. We need to walk the driveway because I am not having a night birth. So she drove to my house and we Mm. hoofed up and down. He was born in September. So the weather was nice. And uh, Mm. so we hoofed up and down the driveway for like an hour. And then I came back inside and labor got kind of rough. And I was sitting on one of those birthing balls and um, I was uncomfortable. And she said to me, she goes, gee, Kendra, she goes, maybe you should get in the tub. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait until it gets more uncomfortable because I don't want to, you know, use all all the powers I have. And yeah. so she grabbed my face and she goes, get in the tub. <laughs> so I got in the <laughs> And the baby was born even before the backup midwife got there, three wow. pushes. So that was it. his
0: work so, was great. So. so you didn't even have a doctor present?
1: No, you ha- well, my husband's a doctor, I'm a doctor. Right. My right. labor support, who was my best friend, she was a doctor and then okay. two midwives. And so usually oh, two okay. midwives show up for the birth. So my midwife, the quote attending midwife was there with me through the labor. And then when you get close to the birth the backup midwife shows up. And mm. by the time the backup midwife got there she put her gloves on and walked in and I was already holding the baby. So. <laughs>
0: um, what are some potential complications that, that one needs to be aware of?
1: So this? with a, uh, I mean, just with birth in general is bleeding. That's the biggest problem, you know, postpartum uh, bleeding or hemorrhage. Midwives in most cases carry all the pharmaceuticals. If, if it comes to that, that you would need to be able to stop bleeding. Some of the things that kind of send you to the hospital is something called a dysfunctional uh, labor pattern where the contractions never really get synced up and they never really are effective enough to open the cervix and let the baby out. Sometimes women just get really, really tired. You know, you just... And, you know, whatever it is, walking down the stairs to get in the car or making the commitment to go to the hospital or knowing that once you get to the hospital, you can have an epidural or whatever it is, is sometimes just enough to get that woman in the right place to be able to push out that baby, which sometimes happens at the hospital unmedicated, you know, with a right. transfer from a home birth.
0: Fascinating. Yeah. So, What about the cord? I know I, I've read that it's good to let cut the cord, not immediately, but like give it a few minutes. What's your take?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So with my daughter, I was still kind of in a little bit of a medical mindset and I was going to, you know, keep her cord blood and give it to us, you know, when we turned 50, so we could have the fountain of youth and all that. And the <laughs> midwife was like, um, if you keep the cord blood, then the blood doesn't go into the baby and it's the baby's blood. And I was like, oh yeah, well, there's that. So oh let the, the placenta pulse all the way out. And then um, we kept our placentas and buried them. Okay. So after yeah you can do that but yes you should always wait till the cord stops pulsating wherever your birth is because if you keep that cord blood and or if you take some of that blood your baby can end up anemic and that's yeah
0: and is that that's that was going to be my next question is is that where the stem cells are derived from from the Mm -hmm. cord blood yep so Mm -hmm. so if you want to get stem cells you basically are forfeiting your child's Yes, right correct so so uh, am I right in assuming that you would be probably against the the stem cell collection and
1: I would be I'm a, I love stem cells. I think they are game changers. Um, you yeah. still can uh, harvest stem cells out of the placenta, you know, after the baby gets all the blood that belongs to him or her. So all of those things are still able to be done. Uh, but I think that any of the blood that's in the placenta after a birth belongs inside your baby, not in right. a container.
0: Absolutely. 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 Um, well, wow, this this has like been extremely illuminating. Um, mm-hmm. I'm actually I've kind of run out of questions.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. <laughs>
0: um uh what, uh what what other I suppose what other misconceptions are there that that you commonly see in your patients about pregnancy?
1: Um I well I I find even after 15 years, right? I still have patients that say, "Oh, you can have a baby at home. I didn't know you could do that." Yeah. Or, you know, the the misconceptions that folic acid and folate are the same thing. I see that a lot. Um, I, I see a lot of, you know, self doubt, you know, where women come in and think that they can't get pregnant or they can't have a baby or they can't push a baby out naturally. And that I think is the biggest disservice to our society. And, and in many cases, you can almost identify it back to, you know, I had a patient who was in her late twenties, who was told by a gynecologist when she was 13 years old, that she had a very small pelvis and she'd never be able to push a baby out. I mean, what kind of doctor says that to to a 13 year old girl? So, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think it's just, it's all part of this kind of transhumanism agenda where we give the dudes the fake meat so they can't get anybody pregnant. And we get, you know, seed in women's minds that they simply can't, you know, do what their bodies are naturally intended to do. And so we have this society, you know, in a lot of cases of just victims or people that are completely defeated in in the sense that they just don't think that they can do what their bodies are capable of doing.
0: No, I I totally agree that you know we're we're being told we're inadequate, like the human body, that yeah. these genetics that got us here over whatever thousands of years, millions of years, God knows mm-hmm. that they're inadequate. So um, yeah, this is this is why I love interviewing folks like you, Kendra, because we it's it's again I keep saying it's a matter of educating. It's not about putting blame or judgment on other folks that are not aware of information we were all ignorant once it's just a matter of educating people gently kind of coaxing them back into the there's so much ancestral wisdom like i was reading about this um raspberry tea leaf and it's been used for thousands of years like there's so yeah. much innate mm-hmm. wisdom in the body as well that mm-hmm. it's it's we just have to kind of a little bit tap into it and trust yourself yeah for sure for sure yeah all right kendra listen thank you so much for coming on the podcast before we go can you tell the listeners where they can find um basically all your stuff on the sure. internet and if you want to plug anything specific please go right ahead
1: all right sure so i'm on instagram as dr kendra becker i'm on fascist book i mean facebook as dr kendra <laughs> becker My account's always on warning. I think I just got another warning this morning. (laughs) I can't, I can't with Facebook anymore. And I have a website also drkendrabecker.com. I have two books on there that are for sale. And I have a great course that I think your uh, um, listeners would absolutely love. It's called Keeping Healing in the Home. It's an eight module self-paced course that goes through a a whole bunch of stuff, healing diets, um, medicine cabinet makeover, how to detoxify things in your house all that stuff. And so it basically awesome. does allow and educate pay, uh, people on how to, you know, just keep the healing at home, you know, go through all of these things first, see if they work. And then if not, then maybe you can make a call to the doctor instead of getting in there within four hours of a fever or something, and yeah. then ending up on a medical roller coaster that doesn't serve anybody.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. 100% agree. Yeah. We'll have the links to, to all of those things in the show notes. And, um, yeah, uh, Thank, once again, Kendra, thank you so much for joining us on the Collective Minds podcast.
1: It was my honor. Thanks again, Christian.